Icelanders and many scholars abroad would assume for a long time that the great oak hadn't disappeared and fishermen in Iceland would simply say it's moved elsewhere, we haven't seen it and they saw no reason to worry about extinction. It wasn't a term on their agenda and there was an academic debate in England and elsewhere as to whether the great oak or any species was killed off by humans or simply by environmental change and so that the species failed to adapt to temperature or food or whatever. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and in this episode I talk to Gisli Palsson, Professor Emeritus in Anthropology at the University of Iceland and Fellow at SCAS during the spring term of 2023 and even previously during the autumn term of 1995. He holds a PhD in Anthropology from the University of Manchester and has been visiting Professor at King's College London and the Universities of Stavanger, Cambridge, California, Berkeley, Miami and Iowa. His current work focuses on environmental issues within the framework of environmental humanities. Gisli Palsen has published numerous articles in international, peer-reviewed journals and has also written several books. One of them is The Human Age, How We Created the Anthropocene Era and Caused the Climate Crisis. At SCAS he will work on the historical origins and theoretical and practical significance of unnatural extinctions which are triggered by humans. This current book project is also the topic of this podcast episode, which is the first episode within our theme, the Anthropocene. Very welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you, Natalie, and it's nice to talk to you. I appreciate your invitation. So, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yes, I was born and raised in the Westman Isles, and I was born in 1949 and spent my first 20 years on a tiny island, the Westman Isles, apart from uh, a few summers on the mainland nearby uh, on a farm. So that was my horizon, and it got me interested inevitably into seabirds. There were lots of them for university in Reykjavik. It was the time of establishing social science as a field and students were active in getting it on the agenda. And that was interesting, university politics mixed with battles against the Vietnam War and other events in the, in the larger world. And then I went to Manchester for my MA and PhD. And I was fortunate to get a job at the university, the second position in, in social anthropology, as we called it. Since then, I've been teaching and researching there, apart from uh, short and long stays at foreign universities and institutions. I've been to Iceland only once, but I understand what you mean with the birds. They are everywhere. <laughs> so very briefly then, what is your research about? It's basically about extinction. Over the last five years, I've become quite interested in uh, extinction. But prior to that, I became interested in the Anthropocene as a new period. And I guess it was uh, sparked by uh, all the voices around about global heating and uh, disappearing species and generally threats to 
human habitat. So, since this is the first episode in our new theme, the Anthropocene, maybe we can start with a little bit of a definition. What is the Anthropocene? The Anthropocene is a relatively new term. It was coined at the turn of the last century. And geologists certainly found it important to add a new label to their complex scheme of ages in the history of the planet. The Holocene period, that was the last period in their scheme, the last 11,700 years. And lots of things happened during that time, development of new species, there was a cooling period and warmings. And for geologists, divisions into ages are marked by uh, fossils or some material in the geological record, which indicates that there's a movement from something old to something new. One of the debates now concerns exactly what are the fossils or the signatures of the Anthropocene. But some geologists were struck by the fact that they were working with a fairly wide period, the Holocene, 11,700 years, and yet absolutely massive and dramatic changes had been happening in, in just 50 years or 100. So the term was suggested, the age of humans or anthropos, and it seems to stay. There have been discussions of it and critiques, and, and they're not silent still. And there are good grounds for um, challenging the term. One argument is that it's uh, anthropocentric with people in the center. The Anthropocene, by definition, is the age of Homo sapiens. And after all, the massive problems of the Anthropocene, uh, global heating and extinction, etc., are not caused by humanity uh, as a whole. It's basically the West, the rich, the nations in the North, capitalism. So... Alternative terms have been suggested, like capitalocene and even plantation scene, hinting at the um, period of slavery and the beginning of industrialism, etc. I think, however, that the uh, debates on the term have gone too far, and it seems silly to continue debating and suggesting new terms. And the Anthropocene is catching on in almost any field and we have to accept the biases and recognize them and deal with them. But we need a term, and this seems to be working. So how do you think about the Anthropocene as an anthropologist? So when I began my career as an anthropologist, I was interested in environmental issues in a sense. The environment wasn't really on the agenda in the 1970s in anthropology. Many of the anthropological books or monographs or ethnographies, they're focused on a special group at a special moment in history while the anthropologist was there. Usually their works were elaborations of social life and interactions between people. And often there was a final chapter on, on the habitat, on the land exploited, the, the coastline or the ocean or mountains or whatever, to explain sort of how people lived and uh, where they drew their energy from. This sounds simplistic today in the Anthropocene. I mean, the environment is totally integrated with human activities. Later on, anthropology in this field became 
broader and the label shifted from ecological anthropology, which was a bit mechanistic, the sort of energy flows between people and the land and other animals, is shifted from ecological anthropology to environmental anthropology, which was much more open and is still being used in many courses at anthropology departments. And that's kind of how, where I landed. Environmental anthropology allows for the possibility that nature and culture is integrated and fused together. And some, including me, have argued for collapsing these theoretical categories, which have structured all the sciences and humanities for a couple of centuries, really. And much of my research for the past 10-15 years has focused on the environment on these broad terms. Let's talk a little bit about your current book project, which is about the discovery of extinction. Darwin described the origin of species, and apparently they can also go extinct, as we see a lot um, right now. So we can talk a little bit about species and their extinction and start with the origin of the species. So what are your thoughts of that? For long, Westerners at least assumed that species were just there and they had been created by godly agency through some theological Big Bang. It was also assumed that these species wouldn't disappear. I mean, they had been crafted. Why would they go? if they served some godly purpose. This is nicely stated in works of Linnaeus. He wouldn't bother with species disappearing. The idea simply doesn't seem to have arrived. He literally states that species that were created in the beginning, as he put it, are still here. He didn't sort of formally rule out that they would leave, but he said they are still here and But by implication, a species that had been made wouldn't go. And this was, in a way, a denial of extinction. Linnaeus had to give way later on to scholars who discovered fossils in England and European mainland, suggesting that Mary Anning was one of them, often silenced in discourse, but a key collector discovered animal remains on the southern coast of England, and scholars gradually accepted the only conclusion from these remains, namely that these species had been thriving on the planet early on, and for some reason uh, disappeared or become extinct. So that creates a space for extinction theorizing. Back to your latest book then, can you tell us a little bit more about it? My latest book, The Last of Its Kind, is a kind of history of science trying to establish the discovery of extinction, or the birth of extinction, the, the fact that ex- extinction becomes set on the agenda as an epistemic object, as it's sometimes put, as an object appropriate for scientific inquiry. So exactly what happened between Linnaeus and the extinction discourse of the late 19th century, it takes only one, one and a half century, is the stuff of my book. But I locate the narrative partly in, in Iceland because the great dog, a famous emblem or case in extinction studies, was killed there on an island south of Iceland. And there were two Brits who arranged an expedition to Iceland in 1858 
to find more orcs, which they were not able to do because the species was gone. And they stayed in for two months in southwest Iceland and interviewed the men who had been on the last boats hunting great orcs on skerries at Iceland. And the great orc was a tall bird, 80 centimeters, nice meat, and also hunted for feathers and eggs. It was unable to fly with only a small wings. So a bit like a penguin. Yes, there became a category of confusion. When Europeans started to hunt great orc in Newfoundland and with the arrival of colonialism, the greatest colonies of great orcs, Geirfugl in Scandinavian languages, or Geirfugl, the biggest colonies of the world were on Newfoundland islands and, and they were hunted en masse in thousands. These were literally massacres. The species really didn't survive it. It were small pockets of great dog in northern Norway, in, in Iceland and Scotland, etc. This trip of the two Brits to, to Iceland and the manuscripts written by John Wally became uh, a matter of discussion. Lots of people have used it uh, somehow in a narrow sense, but no one has dived deeply into them. And this is what I did for the book. I bought a copy of the manuscripts, which uh, cannot be uh, copied. They are kept in the Cambridge University Library in England. And this is what I've been doing for the last five years, to study the manuscripts and the handwriting and to situate the journey of the two Brits to Iceland and the impact afterwards in England. And now it's finally a book. So what did you find in your studies? You said you have studied this for five years and looked at the old manuscripts. Can you give us some insight? <laughs> yes, one, one finding was that Icelanders and many scholars abroad would assume for a long time that the great orc hadn't disappeared. And fishermen in Iceland would simply say... It's moved elsewhere. We haven't seen it. And they saw no reason to worry about extinction. It wasn't a term on their agenda. And there was a, an academic debate in England and elsewhere as to whether the great orc or any species was killed off by humans or simply by environmental change. And so that the species failed to adapt to temperature or food or whatever. But Alfred Newton, who was one of the pair who went to Iceland, kept working on the great dog and having debates with colleagues. He was a contemporary of Darwin and he met Darwin soon after he came from Iceland. This is in 1858 in the fall. Somewhat ironic that Darwin and Wallace launched their theory of evolution while Wallace and Newton were in Iceland looking for the last Great Orc. And the last Great Orc became uh, an example for discussions of extinctions. Was it extinct was the biggest question. If so, why and who did it? Darwin and Newton became friends and they agreed on lots of things and how species uh, evolved given the principles of natural selection. But Darwin had no interest in the extinction that Newton was talking about. Darwin said, sure, extinction took place and it was really sort of what drove evolution. But for him, extinction was something long durée or something in the deep past, millions of years. And 
why bother with some scaries in Iceland or hunters who are killing off the last ones? Newton disagreed and, and he fought for uh, bird protection and, and he debated with natural scientists in England who claimed that the great dog and others had simply gone for environmental reasons. He was saying the killings began in Newfoundland and, and later continued in Scotland, Norway and Iceland. And the last two birds probably died in Iceland, 1844. I think I have managed in the book to establish Alfred Newton, zoologist in Cambridge, as the uh, discoverer of extinction. Since the Great Oak and since Newton's work on the Icelandic expedition, extinction has uh, somehow settled in the discourse. There were a number of uh, several words before annihilation, extirpation, extermination, etc. Over time and fairly quickly, after Newton's work in the 1860s or 70s, extinction becomes the key term. And this is what we talk about today. It's mass extinction or the sixth extinction. So that's the basic uh, accomplishment of the book and my motive for driving this for showing how the shift occurred from the linear perspective. It's been created, it's bound to stay, <laughs> it was God's intention, to the Anthropocene with these uh, spectacular changes in flora and, and fauna. And that raises again the point about the Anthropocene. I mean, how long is it? I mean, it replaced the Holocene, which is 11,700 years old. What is it that causes extinction? basically mass extinction. It's not just the last 50 years, clearly, although some people say the Anthropocene began mid-20th century with atomic power, for instance. And it's not only plantation society or the uh, slave trade and the birth of industrialism in, in the West. It's still older, as you see with the great dog, and there have been extinctions, not necessarily mass extinctions, by human hands earlier on. And this unfolding of events invites theoretical reflections on nature and society. Most scholarships have been using this dualism for decades. And Newton kind of established his dualism in 1860s, coming from Iceland. And he said there are natural reasons for some uh, extinctions, clearly, and nothing to do with humans, even prior to the birth of humans. And then there are extinctions clearly triggered or completely crafted by us, by humans. And he was making this distinction, as some people have said before, in order to carve a space for experts, for natural scientists. We have arrived on the scene and we can measure stock sizes and extinction rates and whatever. And it's best to relegate environmental protection and protection of species, etc. To us, we have specialized training. It was a political argument in the debates in the days of Darwin and Newton in the late 19th century. Now, these labels are problematic. There was or is postmodernism. The natural and social sciences have undergone philosophical and theoretical critique. It seems clear to most that uh, nature and society or nature and culture are, have been collapsed, they are sort of inseparable. 
in a way, the extinction of the great dog illuminates that, despite what Newton said. So um, environmental thought today, I think, and I have some discussions of these and, and the implications for the modern times, although the book is largely about Victorian England and the trip to Iceland and the aftermath of this trip. I also offer some reflections on what's happening now with mass extinction and what this means to theoretical reflections about life itself and habitat. One of my arguments is that extinction discourse in most sciences have been almost by definition too species-based. We start with the Wunderkammer of Linnaeus or Ole Worm in Copenhagen, sort of assembling samples of species. But really what is happening in extinction is the disappearance of habitat. Although we're killing one species, say a great dog, for our benefits, at the same time we are ruining the habitat within which the great dog thrived and lived. I think it's time to take a critical look at extinction discourse on these terms and even the term of biodiversity, which is a critical term in every UN report on extinction. It's pressing life itself into a species kind of box, into a global wunderkammer kind of thinking, while uh, we should be focusing on habitat and the endless network and the fact that Beings are literally conflated and they're not limited by the skin. Because it's all connected, right? I mean, you have uh, species existing in, in an ecological niche and they are part of an ecosystem. So if you take one thing out, then that will affect a lot of other things in the same environment. Yeah. There are some ideas and efforts to bring back extinct species by genetic engineering, for example. And also to preserve endangered species by, for example, rewilding programs. What do you think about these efforts? Yeah, that's uh, an important question. I think rewilding is uh, one important avenue to go. We know, for instance, that beavers have gone from certain habitats in in America and and in Europe. I think in, in Sweden as well. They were slaughtered for their skins and possibly meat and just for misunderstandings. Humans didn't understand the activities of strains, lives of beavers. Although there was a classic work by an anthropologist in the 19th century showing that the American beaver would create dams and fundamentally sort of protect wetlands and very positive aspects in terms of eco-balance. So... Lots of species have been killed because of misunderstanding and it's still possible to bring them back. And there are now, I keep reading in the news uh, about the rewilding of the US, uh, bringing back the the American beaver, Canada and England and and other places. And no doubt this will enrich the environment if it's done well, if people sort of know well enough the ecosystem involved and what role beavers played earlier on. And people fancy bringing the animals back and being able to see them out there rather than keeping them in in zoos. The uh, genetic business is more tricky. It would be fun to have a a great dog alive or a dodo and to see how the bird would operate and interact with us and the environment. And this is a project on the agenda in some context. 
The Great Dog was discussed about 10 years ago, and there was a meeting in, in England by top scientists who said this was quite possible and, and feasible. And the idea was to extract DNA material from great dog remains and bring great dog, in parentheses, to life through the cooperation of a living relative, like, say, a puffin or a, a little alka species, uh, several seabirds uh, related to, to the great dog. And this is theoretically possible, and possibly uh, this would lead to the production of uh, being, uh, which might be called great dog, similar to the, the one and only. But this would be immensely costly, and it's never 100%. Uh, you might end up with a, a great dog that can fly, and you might end up with a great dog who is unable to swim, which would be disastrous. So this is a, an interesting scientific and intellectual exercise, but it's costly, and maybe the funds should be spent on rewilding or environmental protection rather than a pet project by some rich scientists in the north. So you previously wrote, you've written a lot of books, but one of them is called The Human Age. Would you like to say a few words about that? Yes, it, it was a strange thing. I wasn't deliberately writing about the Anthropocene, although it kind of spills into everything we do nowadays. This was some seven years ago, I think. And I got an offer from a British publisher to write a book about, I don't remember how they defined it, global warming or the changes to the um, planet made by humans. And I had a very narrow window to write this. They had a production schedule with other books on other things, but in a series specific size and had to be lots of images and, and written in very plain language, not with academic jargon. And I thought this would be a challenge and, and timely and, and really what an anthropologist should do. And much of our writings are, I think, too theoretical. It's fine to be theoretical, but in an age dominated by such massive problems, we should try to broaden the readership. So I signed the deal and I spent days and nights for a number of months and it worked and the book came out and, and it's already published in Japanese and a Chinese translation is done. So it's appealing to lots of people, more readers than anything else I've written. And it meant that I had to dive into the concept of the Anthropocene. I mean, how did it arrive? What are the critiques and what are the alternatives? And not only that, but I only had a vague idea of what was happening globally. I mean, global warming and mechanisms and statistics and reports and how we realized that the planet was overboiling. And I learned a lot and I was glad I managed to understand and present this in reasonably lucid terms for the general public. It seems to have worked since the book is being sold to other big language communities. But I had to learn a lot. And in the process, I kind of took a stronger stance than I did before. I mean, and I thought knowing the evidence in detail, getting into the reports and scientific articles, my gosh, this 
this is far more troubling than I imagined at the beginning. So I systematically changed my language to a point. Instead of writing global warming, which still is around in many reports and media, I have global heating, even superheating. It's heating massively and uh, global warming is too uh, mellow, too mild. I must admit, um, I was almost depressed writing this. And I have four grandchildren and I keep thinking about their futures. And I urge most people I meet to engage with the environment somehow. What do you think about scientists also being activists for the climate? It's a good question and a big one. I think we should be activists and speak out. David Attenborough, of course, is a good example. I mean, he explores every possible habitat on the planet and lots of ecosystems and species and he speaks out increasingly in his latest products and he reaches out to uh, millions throughout the world and many scholars are somehow activists and that's our responsibility complete neutrality is not what we aim for and it's impossible anyway we are uh, situated in a context we have our moral responsibilities and we need to go from there but there is always a somewhere a boundary. I mean, uh, there's a lot of bad work you can do in the name of activism and, and concerns. And you could overstep the limits somewhere and, and do more harm than uh, good. Or sometimes there are simply uh, complex moral and ethical and economic dilemmas. And unfortunately, and they cannot be solved simply. You need to be carefully thought out and Under such contexts, it's tempting, I think, for many scientists to try to minimize the complexity and simply act, and that's risky. You're currently a fellow here at SCAS during this term, spring of 2023. What is your experience of this multi- and interdisciplinary research environment? It's been a wonderful experience. I'm now in the middle of my second stay. It's partly wonderful because this is the heartland of Linnean theory and it relates to the book project, which I managed to finish here, the copy-edited manuscript, and now I'm done. Congratulations. Thank you. And it made good sense. I could go to the library and made a lot in that sense. But also it's an extremely pleasant company of about 25 scholars and getting to know these people from different disciplines and countries and has been wonderful. And my earliest day was quite nice too. It was in the, in the previous center at Jötavegen and that was in 1995. So I was much younger and unexperienced, but it was a pleasant community, a small, only humanities and social science. And now it's a bit broader, natural science and And in both cases, the fellows are well taken care of with some social events and seminars and our weekly talks. Excellent food. Yeah, it's been a wonderful opportunity. You mentioned it yourself. You have been a scholar before at SCAS in 1995. What is the difference between now and then? The old SCAS was a bit too small, I think, and I now see the benefit of a critical mass. The uh, community was really too small. I mean, I guess only 10 people 
at the time. Now it has probably tripled, and that size is much more lively and broad. Of course, the new facilities are fantastic. While the old villa on Jötavegen was, was fine, near the um, woods, it was nice to walk into the woods occasionally and unwind and stop thinking about science or writing and taking a breath and listening to the birds. And, but these Linnean quarters are, of course, and the offices are brilliant and it's a fantastic opportunity and, a, and an honor to, to be invited and to stay. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I have talked to Gisli Palsson, Professor Emeritus in Anthropology at the University of Iceland and fellow at SCAS during the spring term of 2023 and also previously during the autumn term of 1995. And this was the first episode in our new theme, The Anthropocene, and we talked about his upcoming book, The Last of Its Kind, about the discovery of extinction. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures, Asia, citizen and state relations, gender, Latin America, genetics and evolution, developmental issues and human rights, and also diplomacy and international relations. A new upcoming theme of SCAS Talks is Artificial Intelligence. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Gisli Palschon once again for talking to me and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Bye.